0: You are listening to National Security Law Today.
1: Hey, listeners. This week, we're highlighting a special conversation from our CLE conference that took place earlier this spring. Committee counselor and friend of the cast, Harvey Rishikoff, hosts Gilman Louie, a partner at Alsop Louie and a pioneer in the interactive entertainment industry. It's a fascinating conversation that covers everything from artificial intelligence and our competition with China to cryptocurrency, the metaverse, and how these innovations impact national security. Thanks for tuning in, and here's Harvey.
2: Sheer delight this afternoon. I'm sorry we only have the famous Gilman Louis for only 60 minutes, but given what he normally charges, this is a true gift. I think many of you in the audience know Gilman, but he's currently, and has been for a while, at Alsop Louis, where he's a partner. He's been involved in a tech world for an extraordinary amount of time and is also one of the individuals from Silicon Valley who's made it quite profitable. Maybe he'll explain to us how we sold Pokemon twice for those of you in the audience who have children who play Pokemon. He has been named one of the tech titans by the Washington Post in 2021. He's been in and out of advising the DNIs and the IC since I've known him. And he also sits on the latest Defense Science Board that issued the report on artificial intelligence. A decade ago, he already was forecasting the disruptive technologies. It's hard to find someone that's more articulate and more involved in the space who's then Gilman. With that, we have about seven or eight areas that we've talked about in preparation. But I think first question, as an open question, Gilman, is, what is the current state of US, We say tech dominance in the critical areas that we've been focusing on that DOD has named? Where are we with our major competitor as near analysis at this point?
0: Well, you know, it depends on whose list you're working from, right? And the, the Biden administration just published a, a list of. Deep technology areas, about 15 of them. And you know, the list usually includes the following: artificial intelligence and machine learning, autonomy, advanced manufacturing, you know, 5G, 6G, quantum sciences, synthetic biology, microelectronics, and space and hypersonics. And, and again, the, the list is pretty consistent across all those areas. Now, what's interesting about that list is everybody has the list. It could be a startup. It could be the Central Committee of China. And the US has finally got its list together, like last week. The problem, the challenge that we have is not the list. The challenge we have is while we are ahead in many of those areas, not all, but in many of the areas, the US has either a slight lead to a sustainable lead, and we have enjoyed that lead that has produced, you know, $45 trillion market economy around these kinds of technologies and, and industries but the question of we have a very committed competitor who has taken upon itself to re-emerge in its own mind back to the leadership of the world and has set that out in, in a timetable to do that and so there are many areas that we today are actually yesterday we, we thought we were well ahead on we, we thought we were well ahead of hypersonics and then, oops, you know, that the Chinese and the Russians actually have active systems. And hypersonics As you know, we're still you know, in the process of developing, testing, and evaluating them. In certain specific areas of AI, we're ahead, but in other areas, we're not. Facial recognition is a great example where the Chinese have really put a lot of investment in and built it into the systems. We were ahead in 4G LTE, but suddenly in 5G, the world went upside down. The thing that I want people to think about is not where we stand at the moment, but the rate of innovation and change. And the most concerning thing is the rate of innovation in the U.S. seems to be slowing, even though we have great centers of excellence, right, in our tech centers. And the rate of innovation is accelerating in places like China. The rate, we're we're ahead, and they are already at parity in some areas and ahead in a few others, but in aggregate we're ahead. But their view, this is the, their timetable, is basically somewhere between 2030 and 2035, those lines are crossed and they will come ahead. So I, I wanted to make sure that people understand what this great power competition is all about. And technology is the fundamental place of competition. Chinese missed the fourth industrial revolution, 1820, it was you know, the largest economy in the world. Right? There was five times larger than Great Britain, 20 times larger than the US. And then they had 100 years of humiliation. And they said, okay, we lost, we missed the whole third industrial revolution. If we're going to get back to the top of the mountain, we have to not participate, not just be one of the leaders, but we have to dominate the fourth industrial revolution. And that fourth industrial revolution has a list of technology, same list. So I just wanted to frame the answer to your question.
2: Uh, The follow on question then would be, So if I made you the czar in this space, what's the Gilman-Louis plan for how we would either slow the rate, increase our innovation speed? What would you say are the tasks or things to do? Is it a money question? Is it a people question? What is the gravamen that you would be focusing on? Well, but the good news is that the USS. found itself in these kinds of situations in
0: the past and has decided at their moment in time, we decided when Sputnik went up, we were going to get to the moon first. We had a national commitment to get to the moon, right? Right. President Kennedy made the announcements before the decade is out and we got there in World War II when, you know, we were on the wrong side of the power curve in the 1930s, 1941 happens, right? In a very short period of time, American industry unleashed itself And that capacity was probably one of the key reasons why we were able to win World War II. You know, even when we were producing really poor quality cars in the 1970s, everyone kind of woke woke up and goes, I really don't like driving this Pinto over here. We need to do something better than this. And then, you know, we reinvented our auto industry and then we did the Internet. Okay, so here we are today. So what's missing? Well, we still have strength we had the world's best centers of research the best universities right we fund and we believe as a country in open science and it has produced wonderful technologies and generated millions of jobs and billions of dollars of production and then on the other side we have the world's most efficient capital markets right 45 trillion dollars in the capital markets What we're missing is our ability to cross that chasm faster than our competitors, because in the past, we didn't have to worry about time-based competition. There was nobody competing with the U.S., so we could take our time. Our big corporations weren't trying to over-optimize their P&Ls, so you had great research centers in places like Xerox Park, IBM Research Centers, and Bell Labs, right? I mean, all of industry was involved in that. And that's kind of changed. People would say, you know, there are three variables you can have. You can have speed, time, people, and money. Solve all problems by turn to three and you can win on two, but you can't win on all three. And so in my mindset, the fundamental basis of competition is not money. People are important, but if we want to win this competition, we got to win it on time. We have to remove the barriers that slow up our ability to innovate, to procure, to use. Some of us on the AI commission, one of our conclusions, we never wrote it down, but one of our conclusions that some of us commissioners came to a conclusion on is at the end of this study, after you produce this report, hopefully we don't need to have another study, right? Because every study that I've seen from the national academies to these congressional studies, fundamentally, regardless of the subject matter, they all say the same thing. So we need to stop studying. We need to start doing. We need to use government dollars not just to see great ideas. We have to be use our acquisition dollars in ways that say, if you take the risk and you come up with the solution, you can have a market here. It's not the total market, but we can take part of that risk off. We need to be smart buyers. You know, the Chinese can go to Huawei declared them as a national champion and said, you know what? We're going to put up a hundred thousand Huawei base stations this year. Actually, you know, 800,000 base stations this year. And we, what do we do? We charge our telcos $60 billion to buy spectrum. So instead of putting that $60 billion into building out our infrastructure for 5G, we charge those companies to sell them spectrum, right? I mean, so so, so the policy doesn't align with outcomes.
2: The other thing is because we're the National Security Committee, you know, an acquisition is always usually time, performance, and cost. But we've always said what's left out is the concept of security. And as you know, we've been victims of extraordinary IP theft by our adversaries. What's the Gilman solution to that? How do we lock down our system, which seems to be so porous, both in the defense industrial base and in our government capabilities and agencies?
0: You know, clearly, we need to do a better job of practicing our basic cyber hygiene. And that includes better coordination across our federal agencies. Right. We should never be in a situation where there is an attack. Solar wins is a great example. Right. So so right. the attack happens. There's no coordinating body. You know, we had CISA, but CISA itself was attacked. The, the message went out. We were been attacked. Please don't email us because we can't trust the system. Okay, this, this is the organization you know, they're hard workers at CISA, but it's so fragmented between CISA and the Fort NSA and, and private industry or the you know gas line attack, which is like, no, that's private industry. That's not our responsibility. And so until the nation looks at cyber as truly a space, not only where adversaries can project power, but also as a framework for fundamental kinds of warfare, Unless we protect our whole nation state, we just leave ourselves totally exposed. So so, but the stealing part is only part of it, right? Because the other part of it is that we have this open science. And, you know, some people are advocating to close science. This is a bad idea. The problem is not that somebody steals a piece of technology. It's the fact that, let's say, somebody steals a next generation engine technology of one of our hypersonic this is a hypothetical. Okay, so they steal it from one of our defense contractors. And they take that technology and they implement it and get it up in a vehicle. in 50% of the time it takes us to get to ILC. If somebody steals something with you, you still should have at least the advantage because you had it. You still have it. And you should be able to implement. It. But when we take the time and, and lose on the time competition, we allow our competitors actually to leverage the stolen IP in a way, faster than we can, and that's bad. Well, let me just jump into AI. Since we started with the AI Commission about two and a half years ago, when we produced this wonderful 750-page report, we had this commission of kind of the luminaries in technology from academia, from the government, working through this area of how do we maintain our leadership in artificial intelligence. One of the challenges that we had as we started to think through the problem is how do we not only maintain our lead, how is AI really going to transform the world? And what's the actual impact on, on our daily lives and on national security? AI is one of those things that cuts across all technologies. It's sort of like back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when the internet was transforming whole industries So value was simply taking what you do, like um, selling pet food and adding com. Right, And we're seeing the same phenomenon on AI, where AI is so transformative that I can apply it to services businesses like the law or accounting or medicine, and it's transformative. One of the challenges is that if it's transformative and it's foundational in many of the areas of technologies and applications of what we build and the services of what we use, how do you trust ai what does it mean to have trustworthy ai and the second thing is from a legal point of view how do you hold and who do you hold a system accountable for a decision that a system makes and so there's been a lot of discussions we have in our report a discussion around you know trustworthy ai or explainable ai and there's a lot of research in this particular area but Here's the real challenge of AI decision-making versus traditional decision-making. AI's foundational technology in the current implementation. Machine learning is a thing called a neural net. The neural net is trained by exposing a series of algorithms to large data sets. And like the neurons in your head, those connections get generated on the fly. And so to have explainable AI and a little bit akin to having clean coal. Real machine learning using neural nets is not very explainable to a human. It's not like you can say who wrote this piece of code and who was negligent on th- this piece of code that led to this bad decision. The neural net is formed based on the data that it is exposed to and how we train the system. So in the future... When is the conceptual notion of, you know, today we we think of of coding as this exercise of putting a series of rules that a computer can follow. Now we're in the new world around machine learning where we are training a machine based on the data that we expose to it. So, again, if a machine makes a bad decision, algorithm makes a bad decision, let's say in warfare, it killed the wrong target who do you hold accountable? Do you hold it accountable to the the commander who deploys that system in the battle space, fundamentally the users? Do you hold liable the company who built the system that incorporated the AI? Do you hold liable the company that produced the data that trained the AI? And then when you actually try to get to the bottom of how that machine made that decision, this concept of explainable AI, you find is a very unexplainable item. Our thinking needs to evolve. And this is really, really important because in the Department of Defense, you know, we're committed to not to deploy autonomous systems, particularly autonomous weapon systems, without it going through this huge series of verification and validation so that we can have a level of confidence of what that system is going to do when we deploy it. And, and then there's this concept of, at least in the military who we're gonna hold accountable is the battlefield commander who actually decides to use it in the condition where they're gonna use it and how it gets used. But it is a very complex issue and it is an issue that will continue to be challenging because the technology is moving so quickly that our concepts, our frameworks of trying to simplify it in a way where we can have rules of thumbs to govern it is gonna be very, very difficult.
2: Gilman, the other issue we talked about, because you did the AI, but I think this audience would like to hear sort of like your take on the NFTs, the metaverse, and cryptocurrency. I think I was shocked that you do not own any cryptocurrency. No, I, I don't own any cryptocurrencies. What is your take on, is it a legal issue you have? Are you worried about the technology of, of this new world? Is the predictions of the metaverse correct? Is that where we clearly are moving to? And that's just the way it is. And you've been doing this, I think, for over a decade, you said, of some metaverse-like experiences.
0: Yeah, say so let's start with the metaverse and work our way into cryptocurrencies yeah. and NFTs. So the phenomenon we're experiencing today, you just experienced it, Harvey. You know, we're, we're meeting virtually through technology. We're not physically in the same place. The audience is not physically here. So we use technology as a way to convene and communicate to be associated with each other. And we have seen how in the last three generations across the world, how technology, first computing, then the internet, then the social web, has transformed people's view that we now spend more time in this virtual world than we do in the real world. The metaverse principle foundation, at least as expressed by those in the Facebook camp, is that you know we're gonna put on our headsets or our 3D goggles, right? And we're gonna walk through virtual space and it'd be like a big video game. There'd be 3D representations of the world, and, right? And that will be the new digital world. And, and, and it does follow, particularly in my last conversation with AI, to, to train a machine, you have to have the machine be able to synthetically run all the random combinations of how a system were acting in the real world. So we've got to digitize the real world anyway. So there's this digitalization of everything. That's going to happen because you have hmm. to digitize in order for you then to apply algorithms against that. So let's fast forward. So now let's say there's this digital versions of ourselves in a digital existence of ourselves in this 3D space, the meta world. Yep. There's an alternative view that's called the augmented world, which is a hybrid between the real world, and I put on my glasses and my virtual Pokemon is actually sitting there, you know, having a cup of coffee with me. The cup of coffee is real, but the the Pokemon is virtual. But in my reality, with my glasses, they all look like it's real. Right? There's no difference between the digital world and the physical world. Is that eventuality going to happen? I think probably yes. Maybe not as fast as people think it's going to. It'll be just part of our daily lives, you know? I mean... Harvey, when you were growing up, I'm sure your mom thought you watched too much TV. <laughs> I
2: was not allowed to watch
0: TV. <laughs> right. Great example. That's like me locking up my kid's phone, right? That's, exactly. it is, it's the same thing. So, so in the future, I'm going to lock up my daughter's uh, 3D right. glasses and headsets. Right. Okay. But here's what's interesting. Because people now associate more in the vir- virtual world than the physical world, virtual goods are more valuable than physical goods. You mentioned Pokemon. Right. So I was very fortunate to be a board of a company called Wizards of the Coast back in the late 1990s. And we had this game called Pokemon. Not the, not Nintendo's computer game, mm-hmm. but the card game, you know, right. where people actually would collect these collectible cards. And I actually have in my office a sheet of Pokemon Chinese, you know, first off the press, right, where each of the sheets of cards were worth more than a sheet of $20 bills because of the collectability, right? And it generated hundreds of millions of dollars and you eventually sold it to Hasbro. That was in the 1990s, great business. I'm sure in a lot of people's closets, there's stacks of Pokemon cards. Fast forward. Now I'm on the board of a company called Niantic. The founders of that company came from Google who was acquired when they were in the company that used to be called Keyhole, that was doing... 3D maps right before the first Gulf War. And remember in the first Gulf War, they would show these like 3D images fly throughs of Baghdad. That, that was Keyhole. Google bought that company and that became Google Earth and that became Google Maps. And so that team eventually spun themselves out to create Pokemon again. Except now we have digital collectibles, digital characters, and those digital characters, you know, we generate over billion a billion dollars a year of revenue of people buying digital versions of a thing you can't touch and you can't own that only exists in that particular world. When people ask, well, what's this whole thing about NFTs? You know, the first is blockchain. You know, it's not real money. It's not fiat currency. Like, what is this thing? And then you got this NFT where you got these collectibles where you're assigned a collectible value on a digital object that doesn't exist in the real world. But to all those owners, it's real, right? And, and values assigned based on supply and demand. If there's demand and there's scarcity, it has value. So you may not like it, but that's the reality. So then the question is, and you ask, you started off with, well, why don't you own a NFT? The reason why I don't own the NFTs and Bitcoin isn't because they don't have value. But my concern is the strength of the blockchain long-term. Here, here's the problem. It's fundamentally built around encryption and the strength of that encryption. So are you going to raise
2: the famous Q word, which is that we're all terrified of quantum computing. Is that why you're holding back because of your belief that that the quantum computing on the horizon will destroy and crush the current encryption that we have?
0: You know, there's a lot of discussion about creating this you know, is working on right. quantum resistant you know, algorithms and approaches, you know, alternatives to the elliptical curve and RSA, right? And then there will hopefully be a plan to softly migrate the existing encryption system to this new on the blockchain. But if you bought up something, you got money, you've got back, you wrote down your little numbers and you put it in, in, in a place in your safe because you don't want it to be digitally and somebody would steal it, right? one day you could wake up and it'd be worth nothing because you never migrated your crypto on the blockchain and whether it's quantum computing or another technology, that strength of that cryptology, right? If that gets broken, then the value is
2: going to be over in a moment. So I guess we have a question, which is a classic question that Sarah Hanson asks, so how are lawyers helping you with this innovation? Do you find that our lawyers in this hold you back through your career? Or do you feel you've met the unicorn lawyers who have helped you advance and that they've been a value added as opposed to people that you've had to somehow run over? Attorneys, as everybody on this, (laughs) it's
0: like any other profession. You know, you have really, you know, the superstars, the, you know, the Michael Jordans of law. Right. right, and then you have the ones that mm, maybe not as good, and there are lots in the middle. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been fortunate over my career, not just because I'm married to my wife, who's way, way more smart than I am. Of course, however, you met her, right? Yeah.
2: That's a fact. That's a fact. In yeah. That's a fact. That's a fact. In evidence.
0: I can show chain of custody on that one. Look, I've been fortunate to work with some of the world's top leading attorneys. To work through really tough problems, right? I mean, even the creation of an entity like Incutile required forward thinking and understanding of the law in the regulatory environment. And if, I would say, without those lawyers, you know, without lawyers like Tom Benjamin, as an example, he was a, a, a lawyer in uh, the general counsel's office at CIA or Jeff Smith, yeah. who helped use the law to structure an enterprise or an organization that will endure. That's what good lawyering is about. It's not just I'm going to find the answer, the method to get you what you want, but really to be able to put the framework that would stand the test of the law and eventually stand the test of time. Bad lawyering is about, I don't understand this law, so I'm not going to let you go here because there's risk. And I'm not going to go outside the pure text of the, you know, 20 pages of the, the federal acquisition regulates the 1600 pages. I got my 20 that I always use. And those are the 20 I know if I always use these 20 pages, <laughs> I never get in trouble. And so it, there's a comment I had at CIA when I was at in was after my first year, the director of Central Intelligence asked me to, to sit and speak in front of the entire audience. I had, I had this happened twice. Once I was in front of a group of IG inspectors very tough audience. And one was in front of a bunch of uh, CIA officers. And, but the CIA officers, you know, this young officer, she must have been a GS-12. She was a young officer. She, she went to Q&A after my presentation. She goes, Mr. Louie, you've been in Silicon Valley all your life, and you've come out here, right, to, to Langley and um, into the Beltway. So what's the difference, fundamental difference between what you see in the CIA versus the Valley? Or what's the thing that strikes you uniquely different about us than mm-hmm. the Valley. And I said, the thing that strikes me most is if somebody takes a hand grenade and runs into the bubble, the bubble is the auditorium at CIA, and throws it down one of the aisles. Every one of these officers that is in this auditory will rush to throw their bodies on top of the hand grenade to save everybody else in the bubble. But if the DCI ran in, started shutting the doors and say, look, I need a decision. But if it's the wrong decision, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to fire you. But I need a decision. Everybody would be running for the door. So I said, I don't understand why CIA officers are willing to sacrifice their lives, but at times not their careers for our country. And G.S. told I had the best answer. She said, well, well, of course, if I throw myself on a hand grenade, I don't have to live with the decision afterwards. <laughs> right. And, and 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 so we see this. Not just with, you know, some branches of the legal folks who are working national security, but in the procurement in many other areas. And I understand it, right? We, we we don't want to make a mistake and we don't want to do unnecessary risky things. But if you got a competitor who's committed to beat you on a date certain? And I give you an example. It took us for the F 35 about 18, 20 years to get to ILC. Right. 18 to 20 years to get a plane after you build it to finally get to a place where it's like an, an initial operating condition. And then the Chinese are just cranking, you know, the planes are inferior. They don't have, they can't beat the F-35 this week, but if they keep turning that crank faster and faster and they can get three cycles of innovation or one cycle, they're going to catch us. So, so we got to understand we're in the base of time-based competition here.
2: So if that's if speed is the issue looking ahead what is the sort of national legal and policy strategy you would like to put forward so that we could increase the speed and simultaneously protect our digital assets what framework do we need
0: well we got a lot of smart lawyers and regulators right in government just I mean just the people I've met it's just been amazing and I know it works so we were given an assignment at, when I was an advisor, a special government employee to the Defense Innovation Board. Right. And um, one of the things was we were asked to look at software procurement, right? Because it was just That's taking too long, it was too hard. And, you know, right. they, 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 we, and everything in software is broken, right? We got a great F-35, but the software doesn't work. So we looked at it, we looked at it and then we sat down with the lawyers, we sat down with the procurement officers. And what we said is, we came to this conclusion. We do not need any law changes and we don't need any regulatory changes. Unfortunately, to do it within the specific body of rules, you need somebody who has a unique understanding of that body of work and have her be willing to thread themselves and be a hero to figure out the solution to solve this puzzle. So one of the things we came to a conclusion is start with the framework that nobody should have to be a hero to get things done in the department. So what we said was, if the Congress passes affirmative rules, even though you can construct the rules by going through the procurement process and get to the same conclusion by saying, you can now do this and point to one page with one line that we can start speeding up the system. And so the legal community in the the areas of national security can sit down with the people who have to practice, you know, the procurement people, the operators in the field and say, our job is to reduce the time it takes to get to the other side of passing through all those gates because all those gates are slowing us down. I'm not, not saying eliminate the gates, but combine them in a unique way so that so I mean simply says the law says explicitly I can do it versus I interpret the law in the way that it doesn't necessarily say I can't do it.
2: So you would you would not be opposed that we would start a value. Like I've had many, many attorneys work for me, as you can imagine, but mm-hmm. I had never thought to say, I'm gonna evaluate you on when a matter hits your desk, the length of time it takes to resolve that matter in a procurement context.
0: In fact, we do the opposite if you're you're a commercial lawyer because it's billable hours. If if we measure our, across government, in the areas that really matters, we measure on not just accuracy, but you still gotta be accurate, right? You can't, it's not like just ignore all this stuff. You still gotta be accurate. But if we measure on time, just think that'd be revolutionary. It'd be revolutionary. We will, we will change how we do procurement, how we interpret the law, how we build institutions, our ability to take risks, right? And we would get very quickly to the things that are missing. And then we go to the legislative side of the House or the executive branch of the House and do either an executive order or pass you know, explicit regulatory rules that allow certain things to take place. We would get there a lot faster.
1: Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to hear the rest of this conversation featuring Harvey Rishikoff and guest Gilman Louie, check out the link in the description. It'll guide you to our committee page where you can hear their full discussion along with the other illuminating panels from our CLE conference earlier this spring.
0: The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of
2: Governors of the American Bar Association. This recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.